Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. Hello, John. Let's jump right into it. This week was all about whitefish. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the Alaska Pollock sector, and then we're going to shift over to the overall global groundfish sector as the Groundfish Forum uh, went ahead with a, a virtual event and, and uh, released their annual figures, which showed some very, very strong figures. So we want to talk about that and what we can take away from it. So, John, uh, why don't we jump over to, uh, to you to start off with Alaska Pollock. The, uh, the Genuine Alaska Pollock Producers Annual Meeting was held uh, on Monday. Uh, I was lucky enough to have been asked to emcee that event, which was a lot of fun. Um, what were some of your takeaways? Uh, you know, this was kind of, this is a second annual meeting that they've had. Um, and this sort of new regime or new strategy, new marketing approach, um, has been going on now for, uh, you know, uh, uh, close to a couple of years now. So what do you think? Have they made progress? Has the money been well spent in your view? Uh, I think, I think it's been well spent and I think they have made progress. I, I think they've, They've done quite a job in the short time they've been around. Um, you know, they one of the first things they did was make sure everybody called it what it what it is, or you know, by the same name, uh, Wild Alaska Pollock, and and that was just the beginning. But you know, during the uh, event, they they had a uh, uh, university professor uh, talk about the return on the return on investment that gap is gap members have put into all this marking and uh his study found that you know it was uh, a significant return on on the investment so i mean that alone should make the gap members happy um i i think many of them probably are but you know there's always there's always a few who have different ideas and that that's good too but um yeah, no, I mean, when you look at major markets in North America and Europe, they seem to be doing really well. And then in Japan, you know, the Surimi uh, products are really starting to link up with the health, you know, people's health. And that seems to be lifting uh, that that segment even more, too. So I think it's bright time for Pollock. Plus, they're going to get a, a little bump in the quota if, uh, next year, too. I, I believe. Yeah, if the Groundfish Forum uh, statistics bear out, Russia's going to have a little rise. Um, the U.S. they were conservative and said it's going to stay about at the same level. So we'll see. Yeah, um, you mentioned uh, you were referring to uh, Dr. Harry Kaiser. He's uh, he's with Cornell University, and his uh, presentation, as he said, showed kind of the return on investment in marketing and. I mean, I, I don't know how all of the math on this gets done by a professor at Cornell, but I'm assuming he knows what he's talking about. And I found that actually really, really fascinating um, uh, in terms of taking in – he took into account all the effects that can um, lead to price flexibility and lead to uh, price movements. And it's a price is a funny thing because um, it's a moving target, right? And uh, and it really comes down to two different parties negotiating and ultimately. But you know, so many factors go into it that uh, 
that I think the industry isn't necessarily aware of, and I found that quite interesting. Things like MSC certification, um, which MSC, Marine Stewardship Council, will be very happy to see that um, Professor Kaiser um, found a 3.4% increase in fillet price, um, which was pretty impressive, I thought. Um, but taking in all these factors, it paints a picture of how marketing, how certification, how um, exchange rates, how all of these things have this really uh, interesting impact on price in ways that maybe the industry doesn't uh, doesn't quite always track because there's all these sort of invisible hands that move the market around. But yeah, you said um, you said the return on the, the ROI, and what they found was for every dollar invested in um, in uh, Gap, there was a return of twenty eight dollars and four cents. Um, to the Pollock fillet and and Surimi uh, revenue back to the industry, which is that's really pretty good, and I think that puts it up on par. Um, California table grape programs and California strawberries; those programs um, brought back more. Um, but well, Alaska Pollock was right there, uh, number three, ahead of pork, ahead of beef, uh, ahead of some of the other um, some of the other commodities that have put a lot of uh, a lot of efforts into. Uh, into marketing. Um, so yeah, I thought it, it was very interesting. Well, and I think Gap, uh, uh, they deserve a lot of credit for, you know, a lot of the work they're doing to uh, uncover the market, so to speak, to get down deep into the market for this product and see what's going on. You know, everybody can get in a room and speculate that this is happening or that is happening. But at some point, you have to put the money and the time into do some science on it, you know, do, do some actual investigation. Um, and I, I kind of, I give them a lot of credit for thinking in that direction and, and doing things in that direction. And one of the other takeaways I got, uh, was how important that MSC, <laughs> that MSC label has become for them. I mean, he factored it into his equation, of course, but I I can't count how many times I heard the word sustainability in that meeting uh, the other day. And um, it's really one of the pillars that they're building their whole brand identity around, which is great because it is extremely sustainable and it's a, probably the best managed fishery in the United States. So, um, yeah, I, you know, back in the day, Nobody was in more conflict with <laughs> MSC than the Pollock guys. Well, maybe the Alaska salmon guys too. But uh, those days are long gone, and um, clearly the the value of the label has proven itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was highlighted uh, in a later part of the study that, um, or a later part of the the day, um, where a group Qantas had done a life cycle assessment of the fish, and that was one of the the differentiators for wild Alaska Pollock. Um, was sustainability, and so they really highlighted that with kind of their new, um, their new kind of, um, I guess you could call it slogan: "Good for you, good for the planet." I don't know to what extent that'll be embraced, but um, in a in a sort of official capacity, or if that's just kind of something that they will be um, talking about and tagging uh, email signatures with, but. Um, but yeah, they found that that is something that's really, really important to fish eaters. Um, some of this maybe, you know, kind of seemed like old news. Like, yeah, you know, of course sustainability is important to consumers. Um, 
but some of the information they took away, it was a big, big sample of the, and it was several hundred people, I think over a thousand people with some of these uh, surveys that they did um, that discussed views on seafood sustainability. Um, and, and it's actually relevant, you know, beyond just the Pollock people, by the way. I mean, there's, there's, this is really information that the entire industry should be looking at because um, many, many people um, in the target audience of fish eaters, they already think that fish is sustainably sourced and that it protects the environment. Uh, I thought that was really, really uh, interesting because the, half of them also say sustainability is an important attribute. Um, but that that was very interesting. You have half of the people that they talked about saying sustainability certifications were important, sustainability in general is important. But then on the on the the flip side of that, that fish is sustainably sourced, um, and, and that that surprised me because uh, you know most of our reporting over the years, it seems like consumers have really had this misperception about. Uh, about seafood as being overfished and um, you know not being sustainable, so that that was you know it's one study, but it's still pretty impressive. Yeah, and of course, you know you can't you can't forget that um, the Pollock type products are really benefiting from COVID um, and sales of fish sticks and those types of things at retail have been soaring you know since uh the pandemic uh, set its teeth in into the world so um that you can't pay to get that type of exposure you know i mean you can invest millions in advertising but you can't you'll never get the amount of exposure that those products are getting just naturally because of covid people you know people flying to the store blah 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 so you know, it's you've introduced the product to tons more people, which hopefully they stay. And the ones who already liked your product continue to buy it, probably bought more. Um, so, you know, overall, probably pretty good times for the Pollock people, I would think. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I think you kind of stumble into this success a bit just because of the category that you're in. Um, and, and it, as you said, the, the difficult part now is how do you maintain that? Um, because we are going to get out of this pandemic someday, <laughs> I think. And so it feels like it's been forever, but someday. Um, and so, uh, so I think that's going to be a, a challenge is, okay, how do you make this not a, a, a blip, uh, in, in consumer habits, but something that will stay. But before we go on to the, the market side of that, because that that is, um, I want to talk about that today. Um, but I want to talk just a little bit more about sustainability and and hear your thoughts on carbon footprint because we haven't talked about that. And what I thought was interesting is um, they really highlighted that wild fish has not done a great job touting its carbon footprint um, in part because I think there's a lot of debate over it and in part I think because some of the statistics aren't in wild fish's favor from time to time depending on the sector but Pollock um, they they did some studies on it and um, and found uh, this is American seafoods that uh, that um, uh, I don't know that they actually 
um, commission the study, but um, in fact, I don't think they did. But it was, I think, it was a un university in uh, Lancaster University in the UK. So anyway, they found that um, that Alaska Pollock um, has a carbon footprint that's lower than almonds, tofu, tilapia, eggs, um, cod, salmon, and then of course all the land-based proteins are way, way higher. But I'm just curious if you think that's something that is going to resonate because I, you know, carbon footprint has been around as sort of a uh, as a term in our vernacular for a long, long time. But do you think it's something that is is catching on? Because I just I we're seeing it more and more cited by the seafood industry, uh, whether it's in land-based salmon or aquaculture in general. But um, yeah, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it, it's it's uh, a uh, a two-prong um, answer. Uh, I think it's catching on, caught on at the corporate levels, at the retailer levels, uh, where companies are managing their uh, sustainability profile as they go forward. So, you know, seafood companies and uh, retail chains and even restaurant chains, th this idea of carbon footprint and reducing the carbon footprint um, is is already in in their world right um from the consumer point of view though i i mean i'll just talk for myself i i i don't i never look for a carbon footprint i don't even know what to look for on a package so i don't think there's any package um you know communication uh that is standard or accepted so until that kind of evolves i don't I don't know how important it will be at the consumer level. It, I mean, certain groups, maybe the younger consumers are more attuned to that. So uh, that might be a case. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's just good. I, I mean, it's more important to me that it's happening at the production and sales level rather than the consumer level right now. Because I think they're ahead of the consumers as far as this is concerned. So maybe not a marketing issue per se to the consumer, but more just one more tick on the sustainability box that needs to yeah, be. Yeah, kind of like when eco-labeling <clears throat> eco -labeling started, you know, it, it was much more in the business world as a, as a thing than it was at the consumer end. And even to this day, you know, the embassy still struggles with <laughs> getting consumers aware of their eco-label thing. So... It's kind of analogous to that in my in my thoughts. Yeah. Okay. So back on the market side, because the 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 portion of the event that I thought was really kind of stunning uh, were the results given by uh, Ketchum Analytics and um, Strat Seven Bonamy Finch uh, about U.S. and European consumer attitudes uh, about Alaska Pollock, and it, it was very interesting. Now the caveat needs to be that this you know this research is all financed by the wild alaska pollock uh, you know uh, or the genuine alaska pollock producers so you always need to you always need to highlight who's who's backing these studies that's not to say that it's not independent and this is not valid data but you know let's make sure and say that um but it was very interesting because a couple of the barriers to purchase uh they said was familiarity but that has gone uh, – the, the number of people that have, have said they are familiar with Pollock uh, has gone up 
um, pretty sharply, which is pretty interesting. So, um, and that's kind of the value in this in this uh, survey that they've done here is um, about twenty percent say that familiarity is it keeps them from um, purchasing. Uh, Alaska Pollock. I should say Wild Alaska Pollock because they really focused on that sort of that name. Um, so that showed some uh, some positive movement. That's a three percent increase in familiarity. That's that's a, that's a good thing for them. But also interesting was was cost. Um, that twenty percent more said Alaska Pollock was too expensive versus eighteen percent um, last year, which I found funny because it's not an expensive fish, but, um, but anyway, uh, I, th- there was just really interesting findings about consumer awareness of Alaska Pollock, um, and opinions about other species as well, which was, um, which was really, really interesting. Um, salmon continues perf- to f- perform really, really well. That was really interesting to see as well. Likelihood of consuming salmon is higher then uh, within the next month was higher among consumers than any other fish. But Alaska Pollock was right there down below it. Um, and tilapia not too far behind, interestingly enough. Um, and uh, salmon as well on uh, having a very good or excellent opinion of the fish. 56%. 56%. Um, again, Alaska Pollock was next. It was 48%. But it does show that familiarity, marketing, um, a lot of the work that has been done over the years, it, it pays off. It costs money. It takes effort. But if you look at what Salmon has done, and I'm going to go ahead and attribute a lot of the work done by Farm Salmon to help with that, um, but Wild as well, there's been a lot of marketing effort. And that's, that is really impressive, that 56% of the consumer's uh, surveyed said they have a very good or excellent opinion of salmon. So that that's really impressive. Yeah, and uh, I mean, to just go back on the awareness of Pollock, it, it, you know, for as long as you and I have been doing this, and it's been quite a while, for the most part of, uh, of that time, uh, Pollock, Alaska Pollock in this case, has been the invisible fish, right? It's, I mean you know, millions of metric tons are caught, but you never see it in a, uh, you generally never see it in a fish case. You never see it on a menu. It's been invisible because it's largely, largely been in fish sticks and, and those types of, of products, right? Well, when you go to the grocery store these days and you grab, uh, you know, a bag of Gorton's fish sticks or whatever, the Alaska Pollock, Wild Alaska Pollock, is right there on the front. I mean, they're telling you this is this is the fish that's inside the breading, and I think Gap gets a lot of credit for that. Certainly, the manufacturers get a lot of credit for that. But that is how you you build awareness, and it takes time. But I I, I agree with you. I think I think they're seeing the results of this. Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. Um... You know, on paper, these numbers are showing uh, are showing things that are moving in the right direction. So, um, I would think the industry would would be really happy with that. Um, you know, I I think too. You talked, John, about the COVID um, impact, and 
that is something that really, really stood out when um, when they were talking about purchasing a, a Velasco Pollock. Twenty five percent said their purchase of fish increased as a result of COVID. Twenty five percent. That's really, really impressive. Um, that's not something that uh, can happen in any other scenario. Um, it's not a great scenario for it to happen, but that's a hell of a lot more exposure to um to seafood and to um to pollock in particular yeah no that it's interesting because i've been thinking about this a little bit so 2020 for the most part we should ball it up and throw it in the trash i mean it's just been a crazy year right however (laughs) when we come to per capita seafood consumption for 2020 which we don't have calculated yet obviously but when we do is this going to be, you know, the the year we've all been hoping for? Is this the year we hit, we go from 16 to 18 or 20 pounds, some insane number? I don't know, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, salmon, pollock, and some of the other stalwarts, uh, canned tuna, are really, really outperforming themselves this year. So, I'll be interested to see the number. Now, granted, you don't have the food service side as strong, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. So, uh, I don't know. I, I might be proven wrong because I've been saying for so long that we're never going to get above 16. So, there you go. Yeah, let's see. Let's see. Um, shifting gears over to Europe a bit, too, we, we saw a lot of the similar trends that are that are happening uh, in those uh, other markets as well in terms of increased uh, fish consumption. Now, the European research that Gap financed uh, for Pollock, that won't, uh, that won't really pay off um, until next year, really, when they can compare it. Uh, however, um, it was it was very interesting to see, for example, in the UK where cod and haddock are everything. You know that is whitefish. Um, Pollock is not a well known uh, a well known name there, um, but it's still something that people are aware of. It's a name people are aware of, um, and and that's pretty uh, that's pretty impressive. Um, you know, it's again, it's not to the level of cod. But they'd heard the name, you know. Um, not uh, here's here's how some of these surveys are really interesting. So um, the term unprompted mention, uh, which when doing a survey would, um, well, I couldn't formulate the question, but basically it means that you weren't kind of given a hint to say Alaska Pollock. About seventeen percent gave an unprompted mention of Alaska Pollock, versus eighty-five percent for cod. Everybody was aware of cod and haddock in the UK. I mean, 99%. Um, so it, it's it's interesting to see when, you know, the cultural strength of these fish and how a fish that, as you said, John, is is um, is kind of invisible. The term they used, uh, it was hidden in plain sight, which is a perfect descriptor. Um, how then do you start to get credit? Um, and I thought that was another finding. I'm just looking here. It was another finding was that cod gets a lot of that credit for whitefish, that people have a positive <laughs> opinion of whitefish. Um, they like the taste. Uh, 70% roughly have a positive perception of whitefish. Um, but it's cod is the one they think they're eating. 
48% think they're eating cod, uh, and uh, followed by tilapia, haddock, and then finally uh, Alaska pollock. So I uh, it, that's interesting as well. When you have this this it's it's a it's a hill that um, Alaska pollock's going to have to climb, you know, to to get their name kind of shoehorned in there. And, and that's you know that's the task. Gap has accepted, and uh, you know, I don't know how many times you can repeat wild Alaska Pollock, but I guess never enough because uh, you got to keep building that awareness and be interesting to look at some of those numbers a year from now or so and see if they've crept up uh, as far as awareness in, in Europe for Pollock, you know, and maybe, uh, maybe took a little away from cod. I don't know. Yeah, well, we'll we'll uh, we'll see. But it, it was a it was a great event um, and a lot of really really good information um, that was presented there. And we're working on some stories on it. So um, uh, Interfish readers out there, you'll be able to see this uh, in more detail and explore it in a bit more detail. Um, okay, so we mentioned cod. So let's shift gears just a bit and mention the Groundfish Forum which, as I said, was held virtually this year. It was supposed to be held in Seattle, which is disappointing because for once I would have had a no commute to go to Groundfish instead of flying somewhere across the world. Um, but, uh, but, but they were able to get the numbers together, which is, a, is really a, a difficult job uh, for them. I don't envy them um, putting together the species disposition and kind of looking ahead. They've been remarkably accurate so when the groundfish forum numbers are, pre- are released it's a it's a big deal it's really kind of one of the few indicators that you can have out there of where uh where supply might be be taking us and ergo where prices might be heading um john what was your thoughts just uh when the numbers came out um and uh, what were the takeaways for you from um the different figures on the different species yeah, um, I, I mean, <clears throat> the wild whitefish harvest globally is expected to rise for over 4% next year. Okay, my first takeaway when I saw this come across was, wow, okay, so we've been telling everybody for a long, well, not us, but, uh, you know, th- there's a mantra out there that the oceans are depleted and all the fish are, I, it's, it, it's not true. It's just not true. Are there issues? Yes. But this, if you look at the whitefish supply uh, over, I don't know, the better part of the last half decade or so, uh, it's been really stable. And uh, it goes up a little bit. It comes down a little bit. But there, there, there aren't these variations that would suggest, holy cow, we're ripping, you know, the last fish out of the water. So that was, that was kind of my global takeaway of all this. But um, in general, most of the, you know, the hard driving species, pollock, cod, and those are all going to see uh, some sort of increase next year, which, which is great. Yeah, I mean, almost all, uh, all uh, you know, almost all the major species were seeing upward trends or stable trends, um, as you said. And so we're, we're actually at a level now. Uh, heading into 2021, let's uh, let's say that it bears out. There's not a whole lot of reason to think it won't. Again, groundfish farm's been really impressively accurate over the past several years. Um, but you're now this is the third uh, year in a row of 
uh, of kind of stability and rise. Really, the fourth year in a row, although it did dip down in 2018, um, not not in a massive way. When you look at the 7.5 million metric tons that are actually being harvested, so the fluctuations haven't been really significant. There's been some troubled species out there, um, for sure. Um, New Zealand Hokies had its challenges uh, with management, and Pacific Cod really jumps out as the one that's uh, that's really having its uh, its challenges, um, and that has to do with uh, a lot of a lot of factors there. But the Gulf of Alaska, um, in particular, has had its challenges, and so um, yeah, everybody's keeping an eye on that. Um, but yeah, I, I agree, John, that it's it's kind of nice to see um, some positive news about a particular block of species. And I think it does, when you look at these uh, fisheries, these are um, quota-based fisheries, um, and they've been uh, really well managed with um, using the precautionary principle in most, uh, in most of these fisheries, not all, again. Um, but I think it is a real testament to a lot of the hard work that goes into fisheries management. And it's not our job to proselytize and go tell the world how great um, fisheries management is. But um, I will say after all these years and kind of um, watching the, the different ways that fisheries are managed, you know, um, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And there's a lot of really, really, really smart people. Um, that uh, that make these decisions, and you're making decisions about something you literally cannot see. You cannot see down into that water to know what's happening. So um, it's impressive. It's really impressive that the the stocks are healthy and that um, catches are nice and stable. So um, let's hope that continues. You know, even with all these um, uh, changes in our uh, in our climate and um, all the other uh, crazy things that are happening around the world. There's no such thing as climate change, Drew. You know that. Well, that's that's true. You're right. I can't believe you even mentioned it. <laughs> but that's a, that is a discussion for another time, for sure. We hit on that, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago, and um, and that is something where uh, we we will be looking into that and looking at you know the movement of fish, looking at how it's impacting um, things like parasites. I mean, it, it's. That's that's the uh, that's the cloud there on the horizon when you see these nice stable quota levels and you see these higher catch levels that the the uh, the climate change issue looms and um, that's the big X factor that's going to really impact um, all these fish certainly where they're caught <laughs> and certainly the quality of them um, and who knows what else so. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, why don't we leave it there? This has been our whitefish edition, so it's been nice to be able to, to talk only about one group of fish. Uh, it's allowed us to stay focused and kind of go off a bit, John, so uh, we like doing that. Um, just a reminder, we do have a webinar coming up in early November, um, <laughs> November 3rd, as a matter of fact. We are going to be there to take your mind off politics with a webinar on uh, functional feeds and aquaculture feeds role in the sustainability of the sector. So looking forward to that. We're doing that with our partner, Biomar. Uh, also, make sure and keep an eye out for our land-based salmon farming report that is coming out within the next couple of weeks. It is a fantastic report. We put a lot of hard work into it. The whole team contributed to it. So um, I'm really excited about it and excited to, uh, to get it out into people's hands. 
So we'll leave it there, folks, and uh, look forward to speaking to you all next week, and we'll see you on IntraFish.com. Thank you.